Hello, everyone. Uh, we got an exciting special guest today. This man is an analyst and sports writer with decades of experience dating back prior to the ABA and NBA merger. He's a two-time Victor Award winner as the nation's best columnist, Emmy nominated for the Outstanding Sports Personality as a studio analyst, the 2009 Basketball Hall of Fame's Kurt Gowdy Media Award recipient for his contributions covering the game of basketball, United States Special Forces, Green Beret, and the legendary Peter Vesey, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. And I did that all in 78 years. It's amazing. Hey, it didn't take too long, did it? <laughs> <laughs> so, man, first yeah, I, I mean, say, everybody, everybody thought I was going to be indicted, and I and instead I was inducted. <laughs> yeah, worked out great for you, huh? What's that? Man, I said it worked out pretty great for you. Yeah, I mean, it worked out. A lot of, lot of luck, believe me, a lot of luck. Um, you know, we could go into that luck, but uh, it, it, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. It, it is pretty amazing uh, what was accomplished without, you know, basically going to college. Um, believe it or not, I didn't even graduate high school. But um, Wow. Yeah, and... Um, Never, never knew I could write until, until basically I, I went into the, um, you didn't mention this, of course, but you wouldn't know maybe is that, uh, I went into the Merchant Marine at a high school and, uh, I went around the world working as a scullion, uh, which, which is a guy who, who cleans, person who cleans pots and pans. I worked on a passenger ship, the uh, president Monroe and, um, that was in 1961, 62. And um, I wrote a lot of letters when I was on that trip to my friends, my parents. That, you know, it was the only way. There were no cell phones back then. You weren't going to call anybody uh, on a regular phone. It was too expensive. So I wrote letters. And off of those letters, uh, it was decided by my friends and family that I could write a little bit. And so that's basically how it started. Oh, man, that's a great story, man. Interesting to hear how it all started from, you know, just writing letters to your friends to where it ended up today. That's yeah. pretty amazing, definitely. And, man, I just want to say you're a plethora of knowledge, man. I'm glad to have you on. And uh, it's pretty exciting to talk basketball with you and have this opportunity to interview you and ask a few questions. Well, I appreciate coming on. I, I, I like I've always liked being uh, doing these kinds of shows, especially for for people like yourself who, you know, no no disrespect, but aren't, aren't well known. And uh, right. Yeah. So that's that's where I come from. And that's that's where I'll that's where I'll end up. Yes, sir, man. It's always love like that. So uh, we're going to get right into it, man. Uh, it's the NBA anniversary 75th edition. I know you were down at All-Star break um, doing some work with the Retired uh, Players Association. And uh, I just want to talk to you about Hoops Dojo uh, and what's that mean to you and what's that platform all about and some of the guests that you had on there, if you could go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I... I um... I really, I really enjoy communicating with the old timers since I'm an old timer myself. Um, 
I stay in touch with a lot of a lot of ex players, a lot of ex coaches, a lot of ex uh, people in management, um, and then I was offered by the Retired Players Association to to do podcasts with with some of these people, and um, so I, I've only done eight. Um, they don't do them as regularly as I believe they should, but. When I was at the All-Star Game in Cleveland, we managed to do four um, in two days. And, and, I, and I really enjoyed that because I, I, I truly, you know, you mentioned this is exciting. But I get excited when I interview those guys. I really do. I get, I get really pumped up for it to, to interview Dominique Wilkins, George Gervin, Michael Richardson, and Bob McAdoo. Those, those are the four I did during the break. Prior to that, I did four, and I started out with Julius Irving and then Oscar Robertson and Jerry West. And then Bob Ryan and I did, did a podcast um, with a surrounding tape that I had done with Larry Bird. So I've done eight of them and uh, hope, hope to do more. Um, you know, they, they, they kind of let me choose who I want. I, I really go after people who I, who I have great relationships with uh, but having said that McAdoo and I we we were not that tight when he was playing at least with the Knicks um, so so for me to to get together with him and he and he was really glad to, to, to do that he really wanted to get a lot off his chest and uh, I wanted to ask him a lot of stuff of what went on in his career and, and I think one of the greatest things about these interviews is that I wind up learning a lot Right. You know, Julius, right. When I did Julius Irving, and he and he and I have been pretty tight since um, he came out of UMass and played for my Rucker team, and I just started at the year he came out. That summer he came out, so we've been tight ever since, and uh, maybe not as tight as as before the last last few years and stuff, but um, tight enough that I wanted to do him as the first podcast. And as he said to me, "Of course, you should do me first, You know, yeah. You know, like we got a lot of history. Who better than the and, doc, man? Who better than yeah. doc? So, so he he revealed a lot on that podcast that I had never heard before. And one one of the things that just jumped out at me just now by saying that is that he basically admitted that he regrets leaving the Nets when they came into the NBA when there was a you know a merger um, of uh, merger, but consolidation of four four ABA teams into the NBA and and uh, you know he feels they they had won a championship the previous year and they, they had gotten tiny Archibald and everybody was looking forward to that and then he got into a contract dispute with the owner Roy Bow and held out and um, so that you know everybody knows what happened he got sold to Philadelphia but in that podcast he, he, he admitted he, he admitted he volunteered that he should have, you know, he feels bad about not staying. There was a lot to be accomplished, you know, a lot to be done. A lot, a lot of yeah. ABA pride to whip on the NBA snobs. And uh, he didn't get that right. chance. And, and also he was, he was, uh, you know, he wasn't allowed to be the player he was when he was with the 76ers. And that was another story he told that. Pat Williams, the general manager who made the trade for him, or not the trade, but the acquisition of him, um, 
said to him right away that we don't want you to be that player that you were in the in the ABA. We want you to be part of this team. You know, they absolutely had some great players. You know, they had George McGinnis and Collins, Doug Collins. And yeah. uh, so, you know, that was another thing. I was shocked that Pat Williams said that to him. They just went out of their way to spend $3 million to get him and then $3 million invested in his contract. Now you're going to tell him to, you know, calm down, not be the same player or play, you know, whatever. Right. I, I was I, spending that, really that kind of Spending that kind of money, you would expect to bring him in and have him do what he's always done and be the player that he's always yeah. been. Yeah, and I mean, look, time, time, you know, George McGinnis, great player, ABA, you know, championships, MVP, all that stuff. But let let him and Collins adjust to Julius. This is what he just made yeah. a fortune. Let them adjust. Um, yeah. You know, Kevin That's, Lockery, who was the coach of the Nets, you know, won two championships with, with Julius. And his favorite play was, was a play that he stole from me that I used in the Rucker when we won two championships with Julius. And the play was, you know, during the timeout, I tell everybody, all right, get the ball to Julius and clear out. And Lockery stole that play from me in the ABA. <laughs> and then, and then, Gene Shu, the coach of who, who just passed recently, um, you know, was a really intelligent coach, but um, he didn't he didn't make the most of what he had. Right, right. They still got to the finals that year, and they they should have won it actually, but you know they didn't. And now everybody still talks about that series to this day about how supposedly the the teamwork of of Portland, Jack Ramsey's, Bill Walton's Blazers, you yeah. know, with, 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 were able to beat a team of uh, indivi individual individual uh, talents, you know, quote unquote. But had they not had that fight in Game Two with Dawkins and, and Maurice Lucas, stole the momentum from the from the uh, Sixers. There, there is no doubt in my mind that you know they they would have won that series maybe in six, and instead. Uh, you know, Phil, uh, Portland wound up winning four in a row. Interesting. Interesting. That's all good stuff, Peter. And uh, speaking on that time when you were uh, affiliated with the Rucker and everything, uh, I got here that you were actually inducted into the Rucker Park Hall of Fame. And uh, why don't you just explain a little bit about your history with the Rucker? I know you just kind of uh, shed a little light into it, talking about the two championships with Doc. Uh, why don't you just give us a little history and uh, shed a little light on what the Rucker Park means to you? Well, I, I've told everybody forever that if not for the ABA and, and the Rucker, uh, I never would have gained you know, the, the, uh, the prominence that I gained for breaking stories and uh, be, because... I met I met so many people in in the ABA that went on to stardom in the NBA and uh, and then and then we went to the summers. So I spent six summers uh, of my life uh, up in Harlem um, on, on weekends, and uh, that was that was greatly appreciated by by the people of Harlem and and the and the players who played in the tournament. I brought up a. A, uh, a pro team my first few years up there and um, you know again I had Julius Irving on my first team Charlie Scott on my first team you know we had a lot of Nets we had a few Knicks 
anybody who wasn't a pro was a really good college player, uh, you know, who was already out of college. So those those summers were were unbelievably good to me, and um, I never felt like I was sacrificing anything. I went up there on on my dime and my time, and uh, and then wrote about it for at that time for the New York Daily News, and. Um, I, I never felt like I was, you know, short sheeting myself. I thought I, I knew, I knew going up there, I was inspired by the city game written by uh, Pete Axelm uh, about the rocker and about the Knicks. And, you know, and I, and I wanted, I really wanted to go up there and, and get a taste of that. And, you know, wound up, you know, making friends with a lot of player, a lot of players or um, people that were in Pete Axelm's book, um, you know, I just, you know, Joe Hammond and Pee Wee Kirkland and, and uh, um, th- those guys, I, you know, I got to know them really well. They got to know me really well. And um, and, and the GOAT, Earl Manigault, more than anybody, probably. Um, wow. Did yeah, you see no, the GOAT? Earl, did you see? Earl and I became very, very tight. And, did you uh, watch him play at the Rucker? Is- well, not only did I watch him play, I guarded him for a half in one game. Wow. And, How'd that uh, go? And let me say, you know, like by then, by then, Earl Monagault was not the goat anymore. He had, he'd had a drug problem. He's a little older now. I'm not, not as old as me, but he's a little older now. And and he, uh, you know, he didn't he didn't have what he had before. But right. he had tried out for Utah of the ABA and didn't make it, came back to Harlem, still had a drug problem. Um, I tell the story, I, I, you know, I, I wrote his obituary when he died and and uh, his wife and kids, uh, the last I heard, had it framed and hanging in their in their home. But when he when he had this you know drug problem, um, I was going through a divorce, and I had an apartment in Lower Manhattan by myself, and he was hiding out from drug dealers. And I let him stay in my apartment for a couple of weeks with me, and then I gave him money to take the train down to Charleston, South Carolina, where he's from. And, um, and that, and, you know, the rest is history. And he came back, you know, at some point, I don't remember when, but he came back and he was clean and he started a, a basketball, the Man- Earl Manigault basketball tournament up in Harlem. And I brought up a team from my neighborhood and played up there. And so there's just, you know, a lot of, just a lot of camaraderie and, and, and a lot of caring and, um, a lot of love. For, for a lot of those guys up there, I never in, in six years, and we won four championships, two with Julius, and then I came back with a team in the early 80s. So Julius was the early 70s. Okay. Came back with a team in the early 80s uh, for two years. We won two championships because of guys like Sam Worthen and Louis Orr. Um, I, I heard from, I don't know if you know Sam Worthen, but I heard from him today. He wishes me a happy Easter today. Sam Sam played for Marquette. He was, a, he was an unbelievable Unbelievable player, right. 6'6 guard who could do all the N1 stuff before N1 discovered it. Wow. And he basically won me two championships. But, um, and, and like I said, still still in touch with these guys. And uh, so, I look, I, I could go in 18, you know, different tangents about how good, they, how good it was to be up there. But I, ne- I was going to say, I never had one problem in the six years, ever. Not wow. even remotely. I could go... From from the schoolyard, from Rucker into Harlem, you know, have dinner, go out at night, you know, with with people, without people, whatever, and 
great, great times. And, you know, at that time when I started, you know, I could, I didn't have any problems, but as I wrote in a, you know, a chapter of my book that's still unpublished, unfinished, uh, you know, when I went up there in 1971, they had just, the black liberation front had just assassinated, assassinated two, two policemen right across the street from the Rucker tournament in wow. the Polo Grounds projects. I mean, it's a very, very famous assassination, infamous assassination. And so, you know, two, two, two policemen, one was white, one was black. And, um, and here I am white walking around Harlem, like I owned it, but the word got out, the word got out, like, you know, yeah. treat me, treat me good. And they did. Yeah. And I can tell talking to you that, you know, the Rucker Park has played a major role and been a huge influence in your life. And that's good to hear, man. Great to hear about the stories about Mangoat and actually guarding him. You know, he's a legend. Yeah, I'm from him. the era where he's just let me, like a, let me stop you. Let he's me just stop a vintage you. So, legend to me. Go ahead. Let me let me stop you. So in that game that we played, we had to play it indoors because it was raining. And we went indoors to some small gym, and uh, a lot of our players didn't didn't show up. That's why I played a half, and you know Julius showed up, and um, I'm trying to think, you know, guys you might know Manny Leakes, who's from Cleveland, out of Cleveland. Uh, Joe Dupree played at St. John's. He played, and uh, so I had to go. I had and I kept telling him, that, you know, Earl and I had a good relationship, but. <laughs> We, we weren't we weren't there yet, like I just told you. And, and I kept telling him, he said, Earl, whatever you do, don't dunk on me, man. Don't dunk. You know? <laughs> I, I don't I don't want you to dunk on my dome. And and uh, so, you know, we had a good game. Julius Julius uh, scored like I don't know, 70, 70 points, 68 points in that game. And uh, that was a rucker record for a long, long time. Well, a long time anyway, until Joe Hammond broke it by by a point or two. But uh, one of the one of the great thrills of my playing career was being on the fast break and looking off, looking off a defender and hitting Julius with a pass on my right side. And he dunked. And, you know, the way Julius can dunk. And I honestly, I swear to God, I felt like I dunked. That was that was one of the great highlights wow. of my career. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I could just imagine gracing the court with somebody like Julius Irving myself. Yeah, no, it was it was it's, that's interesting. It's unforgettable, unforgettable. And I have um, I have some photos up here in my office that uh, when Julius was holding out from the Nets, um, he was working out trying to stay in shape at uh, in Hempstead High School, and um, which he's from Roosevelt, which is right next door. So I would go occasionally and work out with them. And so I have uh, five photos up on framed on my wall here. I don't know if I should I try to show them to you. Oh, man, why not? All right. Well, let me let me show. Them. So I never really showed them to anybody before, but let's see if I can do that. So this is so, exclusive first time. First time. So let me see. Can you see them? Yeah, I can see them a little bit. Well, anyway, yeah, I see the one down at the box. Us, four of us, 
four of them working out, and then one one of us, one of them is he and I slumped against the uh, the gym wall, soaked, totally soaked. So that that's probably my uh, my favorite frame in my office. <laughs> wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm gonna transition. I'm gonna talk a little uh, bad boys with you for a second. Bad boys Pistons era. I mean, obviously, they were well known for their physicality at the time that uh, is synonymous with that era of basketball. But outside of that, what uh, characteristics and traits do you think that team had? And what was special about that team that led them to the two back-to-back championships they won? Well, first of all, they, you know, they had great players. Um you know, starting out with with Isaiah Thomas, so they they basically adopted, you know, his his will to win, any anything anything to win type of attitude that he had, and Lambeer was the same way, and so those two guys were the leaders of the team, and uh, they not only, you know, were in charge of the players, what they did on the court and practice and on the in the games, but also on the team bus team playing stuff like that they would school everybody and uh, um, and they were an interesting team to be around of course um, they, they, a lot of the guys I, I knew pretty well they're from New York you know like John Sally and Vinnie Johnson and um, so I had good relationships with them and you know I developed a good relationship with Isaiah over the years uh, you know we've had a love-hate relationship I think right now we're in the I guess the love love part of it again, but um, they were they were also difficult to be around. I mean, you know, Lambeer was was very difficult to tolerate the way he the way he played because he was out and out dirty, and he didn't he didn't care about hurting anybody. All he wanted to do was to take them out of their game and um, intimidate and. Um, you know, at times, at times it was okay. You know, he wasn't really, he didn't, you know, when he wasn't submarining people, um, you know, he was bearable, but for the most part, he was, he was difficult to be around. Um, now you say that, team, what's that? You, you say that. And I, I asked, was he like that just uh, on the court against other players or was he like that with the media as well at that time? No, he was like that with the media. He was, he, you know, he would, I'm not saying all the time, but then, I mean, I right, remember, right. remember times when I'd be interviewing somebody in the locker room and, and he'd be disruptive, and, you know, come in and get in the way and say stuff. And, you know, it's like, right. I, I, uh, I wasn't doing television in those days. I was just, I was just a columnist for the New York post, but, um, you know, I, I, I didn't write all negative stuff about him, but over the years, I just, you know, you, you look at everything, that he did and, uh, or said, or, you know, or bogarted, bogarted the media, meet me, whatever, anybody. Nah, I couldn't, I couldn't take him after. I mean, he, I don't hate too many players, but I hated him, you know, right. respect. Um, but again, all the other guys, I had a you know really good relationship with Dennis Rodman, you know, for what he was coming from nowhere. Uh, obviously, a great relationship with Chuck Daly. Right. Um, I have his book that he sent me uh, in my under my under that framed photo where he you know he wrote something really nice to me in his book. 
Um, anyway, so, you know, I don't know. I, you know, again, I, I try to, uh, I, I try to approach things differently with, with, uh, with, with these teams, these players like Isaiah, I, I even challenged him to a one-on-one game and we played in his, uh, we played in his gym. He had a, like a half court gym in his home. So, uh, I went over there one afternoon and, and we played, we started playing. And, uh, <laughs> so I, I was beating him like, uh, you know, six, six, two. And he went and changed the music. So I got to change oh, the music. Yeah. You know, Fuck this. He's changing <laughs> the music. And then I'm beating him like nine, four, whatever. He go changes the music again, you know? <laughs> right. And so, we were playing a 21 game. So he, he ended up beating me like 21-16 or something. He changed the music three times. And we played three games. And, uh, you know, I think I think he really gained a lot of respect for me because he saw I could play. And right. um, we had three three games where, you know, he didn't he didn't kill me. He was all 21, 15, 16, whatever. And, um, you know, so so that relationship really was enhanced by, by playing him one-on-one. Nice. Nice. That's all good stuff, man. It's fun just sitting here asking questions, picking your brain, and just hearing some of the stories you got. Pretty you interesting stories stuff. I never gave before. Yeah. That's something I noticed when, when I uh, watched some other podcasts that you was on, that you made sure you always let it be known that you try to share new stories and give new information. So, Well, that's all according to the question. So, uh, you know, you should tell the people, I, I got a Band-Aid on my face because I just had Mohs surgery a couple of days ago. I've had a lot of problems with skin cancer in the last 10 years or so. And this is the latest. Oh, man. That's why I'm wearing a hat, too. They, they did a number on me Friday. Right, right. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm sure everybody out here listening is happy you're doing well. And um, cancer is not good for anybody. Nobody mm-hmm. likes it. I had family that passed from cancer and things like that. And well, I'm glad you're still here. I'm glad you're telling your story. And I'm glad you're uh, carrying on in a uh, professional, productive way today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, sir. And uh, with that said, man, we'll move in to some other things. Why don't you uh, tell me about your time with the ABA? I, I hear you started at, with the ABA. Why don't you tell me what that was like and the difference between covering the sport then in comparison to now with the social media and all the different things they have now that just wasn't available at that time. Well, I'll start at the tail end. So I, I, didn't, I, I retired in 2012 from the post and I really, social media was basically, you know, it had begun, but not, not nearly what it is today. And I, I remember that um, my sports editor said that, you know, you, there were people, uh, you know, you're saying stuff on Twitter that, you know, people are going like, what the hell? I said, I'm not even on Twitter. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. But there, there were like several people who were using my name on Twitter. And that, that wow. was in 2011. And I said, I'm never going on Twitter. That, that ain't happening. But as it turns out, you know, I, I, I got on right at the end before I, before I retired. And um, I wish it had been around when I, was, when I was at full strength and, you know, putting out was productive on, on a daily basis. Cause I think I would have, you know, done a, done a real good job with that. Uh, I still enjoy it. I really do enjoy Twitter. Um, you know, I don't take any disrespect from anybody. You disrespect me once 
you're blocked. It's <laughs> over. I, you know, and I've blocked friends. I, I don't really care because friends think they can say anything to me on Twitter. No, you can't, you know, you, you really can't. So the people, I know several of my friends, ex-friends that were shocked that I blocked them. I said, man, I'm not, <laughs> not you, know, you say something to me, you know, get on the telephone. We could talk about it. I said, but I'm not, if I have an opinion and you don't like it, that's fine. But don't don't be coming back at me with smack. I don't want to just want anyway. Right. So that so that's today. So going back though, um, you know, the ABA was was uh, you know, I, I, I'm so grateful that there was an ABA because without an ABA, I would not have gotten a chance to to show what I could do. I didn't even know what I could do. Um, again, I'd come out of the army in 67. I did two years, 65 to 67. And, uh, and then I went back to my job as a statistician with the New York daily news. And uh, they had to keep that job open. That was a, that was a rule. You know, if you went in the army, they had to keep your job open. So, and that's when I decided to start writing. I, um, um, Nobody, nobody wanted to cover the Nets. You know, the Knicks were had become had become started to become really good then. You know, 68, 69, You know, they get Bill Bradley. They make that big trade uh, for the Busher, and in sixty seven or sixty eight, whatever it is. And um, so I I volunteered to cover the Nets, and so I started going up to their games in Teaneck Teaneck uh, Army in, in New Jersey. That's where they began. They were the Americans then. And then they moved out to Long Island. I continued to do it again on my time, my dime, just putting in, putting in the, uh, you know, just just showing the effort. And had I not had a, had I not been able to cover a team that my paper really didn't care about, I never would have been able to, you know, learn how to write. I was just learning how to write. I didn't go to college. I said, you know, six months or so, but I, I didn't, I didn't know how to write. And so I, I, I would be able to make state mistakes, you know, that, that uh, nobody was really paying too much attention to. My father was a, 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 in the business and he would help me. He, would, he was a sports writer and then he worked for Associated Press and the Daily News and he would, he would show me things, but nobody else did. Everyone else was just like, you know, who cares about the Nets? So thank God for the Nets. And then that went on for a number of years. You know, they'd gone from Long Island. They were, you know, they were Island Garden and they opened the Nassau Coliseum. And I don't think I got promoted until, wow. So I started in 67 writing. And I was still doing statistics when I was in the office. Uh, but I don't think I got promoted until maybe 1973 or 74. And um, I basically had to go to the executive editor of the Daily News and say, my God, I mean, how many how many stories do I have to break? How many things do I have to do? And he and he promoted me, basically. His name was Mike O'Neill. And that's how I got promoted. And so and then once the Nets got good, once they got Julius Irving, um, then people in the office, uh, you know, then then they wanted the job. right they would they would like you know you know it is so yeah you know subverting me in the office when i was out covering stuff and i'm not saying my writing was was any good or whatever i'm just learning and they'd be talking crap about me or rewriting me and stuff and right i remember coming home after one i I didn't realize what was happening because 
you know, you file your stories and, you know, you, maybe you read them the next day, maybe not. You had things to do. And, and so I found out this one guy was rewriting my stuff. And I came in the office after a game with the Nets and he had rewritten that article that day. And uh, we were on the seventh floor of the Daily News and I held him out the window of the seventh floor. Wow. <laughs> I swear. I mean, that was close. I almost threw him out the window. I was like, Really? Well, good thing you did it because no, I know it's a good. It led thing, to it led know, to a huge level of success for you. Like that needed to be. Yeah, that's not too. good. Sometimes you gotta. Yeah, sometimes you gotta fight fire with fire, though. When people yeah. act like that, too. He never rewrote anything of mine again. But when he went out, he ended up leaving the news, and he went out to uh, Oregon. His name was Augie Boggy, if you can believe it. And <laughs> he went out to Portland. He became a columnist out there, and he wrote a scathing article about how. You know, I'd make up stuff and stuff wasn't true and blah, blah, blah. It was at a time when I'd written um, that the Blazers were trying to trade Johnny Davis, who was a rookie starting guard on the 77 team, and, um, and Maurice Lucas. So this is maybe a year or two after that. And uh, I, I was traveling, traveling with the Blazers, Jack Ramsey, you know, let me travel with the Blazers on the East Coast for a week. And off that off that week, uh, I came up with the story about Johnny Davis. And uh, so Ramsey, Ramsey was killing me. Uh, <laughs> sorry, he invited me on that trip. And uh, and this Augie Boggie wrote this story about how I make up everything and blah, blah, blah. So it's funny because Johnny Davis is now the head head of the retired players association like he's on the board but i think he's i, I don't know what his title is governor whatever so i saw him in cleveland during the all-star break and we talked about this and and i and so johnny davis wound up being traded okay and maurice lucas wound up being traded and augie borgie wound up being fired but ramsey never apologized but Johnny Davis is the only player, and, and we talked about this. I said, Johnny, you're the only player who has ever called me in my life to apologize. Because Johnny had right. come into my face and said, you know, why, why are you writing this stuff? They swear it's not true. I said, Johnny, my sources are telling me it's true. So we were, we were talking about that. And he says, it turned out, you know, sources were correct, and they lied to him. Right. So right. anyway, there, there's a story in itself. I mean, that, that just happened. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow but yeah, I, love yeah the so, uh, I love the aba uh you know I, I definitely have said this many times written it i bleed red white and blue the uh the uh, respect and uh you know we have for each other to this day anybody anybody that was in the league uh, within reason um we stayed in touch over the years. I, I, uh, I still hear from a lot of the ABA guys, whether they're trainers, um, you know, wh whether they're players, coaches, um, who's ever around, you know, I hear from so many of them, you know, like Willie Wise and Jimmy Jones and, uh, you know, Ron Boone, who were on that, you know, Utah teams and stuff. And, uh, um, anyway, it, it's, it, it, it's, it just goes on to this day in 19 let me see in 2018 we had a 50-year reunion in indianapolis and uh you know i was invited and um so you know jim o'brien who was another guy who covered the aba extensively he's he's still writing actually he's still writing books and stuff in pittsburgh 
He worked at the New York Post at the time. He was invited. Well, a lot of us were invited. Uh, there weren't players, coaches. But so I maybe 125 people showed up. You know, many of them have died since 2018. For instance, like Slick Leonard, who, who coached the Pacers to three championships. And we were given rings and 50th championship rings. And uh, I got one. I was the only writer to get one. But it just, I mean, it just, and I gave the speech, you know, Costas, who, Bob Costas, who was the announcer for the Spirits of St. Louis at the end, at the end uh, of their do, their being, I think maybe they were only around two years. And I think he, he was their first and only broadcaster. And so he was there, wow. he gave a speech and I gave a speech and we were the only ones that spoke. So, I mean, how meaningful do you think it was to me to, you know, I mean, when I got my ring out, I, you know, I basically jumped for joy. I was just yeah. so excited to get it. And uh, I can imagine. Yeah. So all those relationships, all the stories that were told, you know, that, that weekend were, were, were fabulous. And, um, and we move on. Yeah. I mean, you definitely was a pioneer uh, credited by most as far as the first uh, inventing the first pregame show, along with uh, Hubie, Earl of Pearl, and those guys, Mike yep. Green, I believe. Yep. And uh, I also got wind that you were one of the uh, – you was brought on as an analyst, I believe, during the uh, USA Network days, during the first season on uh, when the NBA aired on cable. Is all, that true? All true. And, yeah. And uh, – as far as being a pioneer and everything, do you feel like you get your uh, just due? And what were some of your most memorable moments in your career as far as uh, iconic moments on the court, legendary games or things like that that you cover? What, what would be, in your eyes, your uh, most memorable moments? Well, let me go back to what you asked me. So the USA Network was the first cable network that had the NBA. And I did, I did get a job. I got a job doing a pre a, a, a halftime show by myself, uh, which bombed. It was, it was terrible because, because they didn't pay any attention to it. They didn't, nobody helped me came into my apartment, moved the furniture, set up the cameras. Okay. Talk. Oh, I, had wow. no experience. I had no experience in that. Right. So, so it was, it was, it was di very difficult, but I didn't last that long. So it wasn't that difficult. And, um, I, I think I might've lasted three or four shows and, uh, said some stuff about, I'm not really sure. could have been Spencer Haywood, could have been Bernard King, could have been one of those guys. And David Stern didn't like it at all. And, uh, David called, uh, called me up and fired me and, uh, but told me that, they were going to pay me for the year. So I got paid for the year. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't great money, but whatever. I got paid for the year. I used, I used it to buy furniture for a, for a home I had just built. And, right. uh, we, 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 the living room and the, uh, the dining room with the furniture that he paid for. And I, we ended up calling it the David Stern rooms. <laughs> right. Now, what you saying, it was only three or four games. Obviously you said you got paid for the rest. That was early in the season. Did you actually, uh, do the halftime show for the first airing of, yeah. uh, on the cable network. That's yeah. pretty, that's pretty uh, revolutionary. And that right there, I, I like to say that changed the, the viewing perspective from fans. You know, well, you I, don't, really, I don't think that did. I, I don't think that did because I was there such a short time. And, and no, I don't think 
you know, I'm amazed you remember it. You, you know, you did your research, you found out about it. But I think what what changed, what really did change it was that when Hubie was out of a job um, coaching, I came up with the idea of a halftime show. And we did we did the uh, uh, we did the pilot. And again, you mentioned all the names and I was the one to put that together. Uh, Earl Monroe was my guest. Hubie and I would would be there talking about things that went on in the week, and then we would argue about things. And then I had Mike Breen, who was just starting to come into his own, or just not had come, hadn't come into his own. He just gotten out of college, uh, Fordham. I'd, I'd known him at Fordham. He and Mike K were at Fordham together, and I used to do their show up at Fordham. Right. And I asked him to MC it, and and so he 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 did. We did the pilot, and it sold. And and we did ten segments that year, nice. exactly the way NBC wound up doing them years later. So we did ten shows. Uh, I would go out and do an interview uh, during the week, and uh, we then we would show it during you know during when Hubie and I would talk. But they didn't have the money to keep Mike Breen, so I had to assume his role, which was very difficult. I had never done that, but it was good. I still have them. I have the 10 segments. Right. And, and um, you know, so I would do a feature every week and, and blah, blah, blah. But the problem was, you know, I'm not going to get into it too much, but we didn't get paid. Right, right. People who, who were running it, uh, turns out one of the guys was a, was a huge gambler and uh, he lost all our money. And I had to sue, I had to sue him and his uh, production company for the money for me and Hubie. And, and I point this out all the time. Hubie never gave me uh, half of what I had to pay my lawyer to get it done. But we only we only got paid two thirds of what they owed us. And my agent at the time told me, you know, told us, don't quit. Don't quit. Do the 10 weeks. You know, you'll get paid. You'll get paid. Well, we never got paid. Had to right. sue. So anyway, so we didn't we, there was a budget for the second year of like, I believe it was two million dollars. But because this guy lost all the money gambling, he never paid anybody. So we were done after one year. And this was shown, by the way, on CBS affiliates, on affiliates. And the affiliates could use it whenever they wanted. They didn't have to use it that day. They didn't have to use it that night. They could use it, you know, the weekend, whatever they wanted. Right. And we were were on like 77% of CBS's affiliates. Wow. And they, yeah, it it was unbelievable. Yeah, and with two million ready to go for the second year, and so we got stiffed, and so obviously that cost me a lot of money. And then, and then you know, CBS tried to pick up where we left off, didn't do a real good job. And then when NBC began, um, when when they took over for CBS, they had auditions for, you know, who would be the halftime talent, who would be the post pregame talent, you know, post game, and and uh, they had like fifty interviews, and and I was and I won. I was I was picked as as one of the two guys that that came out of that Bob Ferry, who again another guy who just passed away. Um, he and Gene Shue were together down in in Baltimore, you know, GM and coach. So Bob Ferry and I were were two of the uh, the insiders, and the other two were uh, Pat Riley and Bob Costas. Pat Riley was coming off, come, just left the Lakers, and so he spent the, that first year with us. So anyway. So I, I spent, uh, NBC had, had uh, the NBA 12 years, and I was one of uh, 
four people, I believe, that were there the whole 12 years. It was Costas and and, um, and Marv Albert and um, myself and, and one other guy, a uh, statistical guy. That was it. And 12 years. And then, you know, so that's the story of NBC. Right. A lot of great games was covered during that time period. A lot of... Uh epic moments as far as uh that whole nick bulls rivalry at the time uh what what would be an interesting or something new story out of that bulls uh nick's rivalry that some fans may not have heard i know you covered them a long time and probably have a lot of things in your bag regarding that whole time period with those two. Yeah. So these are the kind of questions I don't like because they're too, they're too non-specific. You know, you want me to come up with stuff that, uh, that happened during those years. I mean, a million things happened. Uh, well, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say specifically around uh, the playoff series where uh, Michael Jordan had just came back off of the uh, return and they were looking to try to get back prominence. Obviously they, uh, the Knicks had just come out of the East. What was it like covering that first uh, time around of them facing each other again? Well, first of all, um, you know, I was, I was definitely involved big time when Michael came out of retirement. Um, I was sent by NBC to, uh, to to Chicago to to be around him when he was you know working out and then the first game was in Indiana and I covered that I was there and you know it, it, it it's silly some of the things that stick out but what stuck out sticks out most about that first game is not how you know well he played or whatever who won I don't know. I couldn't even tell you who won but I remember them right before the game they're coming to me at at courtside for comments about whatever. And the national anthem starts playing. So it was, you know, it was like terrible timing by the producer. So what am I supposed to do? They don't tell you, you know, like, am I supposed to keep talking? No, I mean, you know, you gotta be right. respectful for, for what's going on. You know, yeah. play. So that really pissed me off, you know, unnerving, very unnerving. And I don't even remember, you know, how it turned out, but that, that, I, that I remember vividly you know, that uh, it really screwed me in that situation. But, um, you know, that, that, you know, what also stands out about his comeback is that, you know, they lost. They lost to Orlando. That was 95. I remember Nick Anderson making a, a great steal of, on Michael and uh, putting away, putting away a game and maybe, maybe the series actually. And um, so that stands out also. So, I mean, he didn't come back. I think it was 17 games to go in the season when he came back. Not enough time for him to get into, you know, MJ shape or to regain that, that men, you know, that mentality that he had to have. Um, you know, I, I'll tell you, one, one of the things that we were just talking about this the other day, a friend of mine, is that what, the, what I remember a lot is when he was not there and the Knicks played the Bulls at the Garden, and Hubert Davis, who you know, whose team just lost in the finals, as you know, in North Carolina, lost yeah. to Kansas. You know, so he he made a big shot in that game. Do you remember? Yeah, 
He made a, he made a shot that uh, it, it was a terrible call by the ref. I believe the ref was Hugh Hollins. And uh, he wound up calling a foul. And Hubert Davis got three shots. He was a great shooter, and he made them all. I, I, I hope I'm correct about that. So, And I told my friend, I said, yeah, but when that shot went off, I'm at courtside, and the head of the officials was is Daryl Garretson. And he was standing behind me when that call was made. And he said, what a shit call. Wow. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Say what, huh? Yeah, yeah, that's that's I crazy. Quoted him. I quoted him in my column, but, yes, but sir. Uh, we weren't that tight anyway. But I couldn't believe that he would <laughs> always say that about the referee. And uh, so that game meant that game was you know humongous. I think I think that was the game also where maybe not, but definitely the series where you know Phil Jackson gave that last shot to tie the game to no yeah to tie the game to uh, Tony Kukoc. Instead of Scotty Pippen, remember? And, yeah. and Scotty refused to, to, to inbound it. He stayed on the bench. So, you know, what a, what a controversy that was. And, um, you know, Kukoc makes the shot. And uh, so I wrote a column. I'm, you know, look it up. I'm the only one that defended Scotty. I, I, thought, I thought he absolutely should have gotten that shot. I mean, he deserved the shot. This was his team. This wasn't Tony Kukoc's team. Right. You know, again, I'm trying to remember numbers and stuff and, you know, games when they were, where they were. But I, as I recall, Scott, Tony had only played 18 minutes in that game. Right. You know, they were there. They were there at the final because of what Scottie Pippen was doing. And he he was the man. It wasn't a shot. I'm trying to think. Did it win the game? Did it tie the game? I think I can't even remember. But but whatever. Scott, I think it won it. Scotty, Scotty should have gotten that shot, and uh, he he had earned it. It was his right. team, and and I, you know, as a as a columnist, um, I I'm not gonna lie in this situation. I was rooting for the Bulls to win it that year. I wanted them to win without Jordan. Not that I right. had anything against Jordan, but I I wanted that to play out. And and I think I think they they were right there, and I think that they would have they would have beaten Houston had they gotten into the finals. There's no doubt in my mind they would have. So right. Pippen, Pippen, you know, he's got a lot to say about a lot that went went down, and you know, people think he's, you know, he's out of his mind and stuff. And but, but I, I was there with that, and I remember my wife, my ex-wife now, telling me she said, "Well, of course, of course, you wrote that Pippen should have gotten the shot." She said, "Because you're exactly like Pippen." <laughs> <laughs> I should have known that marriage wasn't going to last. <laughs> right. Now that we're talking uh, Bulls in the Michael Jordan and Pippen era. And things like that. I'm gonna fast forward a little bit to the uh, '97 championship game six. Uh, Bulls just clinched it. Carl Malone, you did a uh, interview with him after afterwards. Um, some consider it controversial, pretty tense. In the uh, it looked pretty tense coming all across to viewers, especially me. I was young at the time watching it. Seemed like he almost wanted to just pop you in the face. But uh, if we can, man, can we can we uh, go through that with the viewers and describe how you uh, stay composed as a reporter covering how you stay composed in those emotional driven moments uh, from players and still get the questions you want to ask out? And what was it like in that moment, if you recall? Well, I don't I don't think it was controversial. A years later. 
years later, people right, right. are watching on television and you know YouTube and stuff, and they're going like, I remember my son calling me and saying, "Geez, I mean those questions you asked on you know Carl Malone ten years ago, whatever it was, twenty <laughs> years ago." I was like, what? "Yeah," I said. I don't even remember the question. I, I don't even I remember interviewing him, but I don't remember asking him anything really difficult. I mean, right. you know, looking back, I, if I if I wanted to really ask him something difficult, I would ask him how come he allowed Jordan to steal the ball from from behind on that baseline, you know, that last that last play when then he went down and the Bulls scored and won the game. It's like, how could he not? I mean, my you know, Michael Malone is known for elbows, you know, right. He, he should have never let Jordan, but Jordan snuck up from. But I could ask him about that. I think that, that was, I think that was the year after Peter. I think that was the year after. I think this was the first year, and uh, the the question I'm referring to is so when I, you were. I, re I remember interviewing him. So so you again, you you might be you might very well be right. So so again, I don't remember asking him any difficult questions. Um, you know, somebody has to ask the losing guy some tough questions. Nobody likes to lose and. And uh, so I asked them questions, you know, for year, and, and again, like at an all-star game in New Orleans about, I don't know, five, six years ago, uh, I saw I saw a call and I said, you know, everybody's really upset about those questions that I asked you after the game. And he said, what questions? I don't remember any questions. I said, exactly. That's what I say. Um, and I said, you know, Carl, uh, you and I, you and I would uh, – we'd be good. We should do a podcast together, uh, me and you, you know, because he's outspoken. I'm outspoken. Right. He said, well, right. you know where to reach me. Call me, you know. But I, I never have. But that, that still could be on tap. He could be one of the guys I'll, I'll go interview. Yes, But, um, again, uh, people people seeing it years later think there was more to it than it was. Right, right. It's a different era, obviously, than back then. Uh, well, I don't know about the era. I don't know about that, but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know anybody that would ask them the questions I asked. But right, I don't think I don't think you're going to ask too many, or not you, but reporters these days aren't asking that. You no. are well known for your uh, straightforward approach and your articles, and that's one of the things that I feel made you the person and had the success that you had. So yeah, I mean. Uh, Speaking on that, in 2009, you uh, did get the Kurt Gowdy Media Award. That was a pretty loaded Hall of Fame class with uh, <laughs> Vivian Stringer, Jerry Sloan, uh, David Robinson. Obviously, Michael Jordan was in that class. Just uh, John Stockton. Exactly. Exactly. Doug, I was going to get Collins. To Doug, Doug Collins won the Media Award also. TV. Right, right. Yeah. So, uh, if you will, can you just kind of take us, take us through that and what that was like as far as uh, winning the award, how much how, how much it meant to you or whatever, along with uh, being on the platform that day with those other people. Yeah. Well, I, you know, again, this is some. This is a question that I've answered many times, so um, I'm not going to go into at length on it, but but. Um, I tell everybody that first of all, I I uh, I wasn't I wasn't real happy about the award. Uh, I I came very close to turning it down. I thought I should have been in ten years earlier. Uh, they were putting people in the Hall of Fame that were a joke, and um, and I told that to the guy. I mean, when the guy called me to tell me I got in, I said, you know, all right. 
don't know. So, so I wound up taking it because I felt that maybe if I was in the Hall of Fame, that um, I would have a voice to help people that deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And that was basically my speech after when I received the award, which pissed off a lot of people, but didn't piss off the people that I said warranted the award. Guys like Dennis Johnson and Artis Gilmore and Jamal Wilkes and, and on and on. Everybody that I mentioned in my Hall of Fame speech got into the Hall of Fame. And I did I did have a voice. They, they, Jerry Colangelo, who was, who was the head of the, uh, the Hall of Fame, he had me in the room, you know, making making choices on, you know, nominations and, uh, and then, you know, who got inducted. And so I did have a voice for two years anyway on, on people who got in and that voice on people who didn't get in, who I was adamantly against. Um, and that's basically it. I mean, the, the Hall of Fame, um, yeah, the class was great um, that I went in with. I never was put in contact with anybody that went in the Hall of Fame other than Collins. I never saw it. I never, you know, I would have liked that a picture with Jordan and Stockton and Robinson. I would have liked nothing. Right. So I have nothing from there. And wow. I haven't been back since. Uh, you know, just a lot of stuff that they do is just really, really pisses me off. But people who get in and the people who don't get in. Um, but I do plan. I do plan to go there this year because uh, a number of my people who I really respect are getting in. Uh, Larry Costello, who's been dead for basically 20 years, should have been inducted 25 years ago. He's finally coming in as a contributor, which is a joke. Another joke that the Hall of Fame hadn't put him in as a coach. He's got one of the highest percentages as a coach of any coach, but he didn't get in. He's going in as a contributor. Get the hell out of here. I mean, there are Nike executives that get in uh, as as, wow. as contributors and above. Like Larry Costello. You know that Casey Jones is not in the Hall of Fame as a coach? He's not in the Hall of Fame as a coach. He's got like, that, I think, the third That's absolutely ridiculous. Per, third highest percentage ever. And was just voted to the top For 15 coach. coaches ever. And he's not in the Hall of Fame as a coach. I mean, it's, it, you could go on and on. But anyway, I'm going because Costello's going in. Del Harris is going in as a contributor. And uh, and so I want to be there for, for those guys and a couple others that are going in this year. Nice. How's that? Nice. <laughs> so um, i like to ask... What would be, what would be if there was one era of basketball that you feel transcended it and really catapulted it? I know everybody says the Magic. Johnson. Yeah, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna go there. I look. I I swear. I, I hate. I hate those kind of questions. I hate speculation questions. I mean, who who the hell knows? Who the hell knows? Who was the best era? Who who's the best players? I will. I will say that. It, it's it's shocking to me how many great young players there are today that get no exposure until now. And I, I tweeted about that yesterday, the day before. It's like I'm, I'm seeing a lot of these guys, these young guys for the first time for any great lengths against really stiff competition. 
And I, I'm just amazed. Every team in the playoffs and, and several teams that didn't make the playoffs have young guys that, that are spectacular. So, you know, national television, I, I have no no respect for the people who run these things. You know, why, why they can't make command decisions to stop forcing the Lakers in particular onto the audience when there's nothing happening there just because of LeBron James. I mean, what? So we're going to go in. We're going to go watch LeBron James score 35 points, and we'll talk about how he's passed this guy and he's on the right, on 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 route to pass the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the highest score. I, I don't care about that stuff. And I mean, they they right. just they're killing it. They just kill it. So I hardly watch during the season. That's why I'm I'm really glad to see you know the the great the great players who I mean the game today. Of course, we know what the Nets have and what what. Boston has tremendous, tremendous games. Unfortunately, it's a first round game uh, series, but we know those players. But what I'm talking about, you know, watching Cleveland and watching Atlanta and uh, and Memphis, and I mean, God, so many good players. Yeah, the John Morants of the league, the Garlands, players yeah, like that. I mean, it's, Garland. it's just, I mean, my God, Garland. I mean, we talk about yeah. Trey, we talk about talk about Ja, we talk about. You know, Luca and stuff, and then you get Garland. Well, what the hell? <laughs> right. Seems seems like you know, there's a lot of talent around the league, and they're not getting their just due as far as national televised games and things like that. It would definitely would be nice to see a large variety of teams uh, on that platform. And uh, speaking of young players, have you had a chance to uh, take a look at some of the young players going for Rookie of the Year this year? No, not really. I mean, I, again, I, I saw uh, uh, Barnes the other day for right. the first time at any length. Uh, terrific. Um, who who else is up for it? Is, is, uh, is, is the uh, Cleveland? Yeah. Forward, is he... I believe the three top I – th- I believe the three top choices is Scotty Barnes for Toronto Raptors, Cade Cunningham with the Detroit Pistons, and uh, Evan Mobley. For the Cleveland Cavaliers. Okay, so Mobley Mobley is fantastic. Right. I have not seen Cunningham because why would I? He's not on national television. Right, you know, they didn't right. have a good team, but uh, but they came on at the end of the year. Um, yeah, I mean he he's he's terrific. I mean he he's going to be a superstar, and and so is Barnes. And then you know I got I got to see uh, um, the Minnesota the Minnesota player. What's his name? Anthony. Yeah, Edwards. Anthony, I mean, my God, <laughs> who knew he was this good? You know, yeah. who would know other than the team, other than the, the other than the writers who were covering Minnesota? I mean, you right. know, you hear about it, but then you see it. Yes. Like, whoa. It's a big difference when you see it for yourself, man. Yeah. Big oh, difference when goodness. you see it for Can't yourself. enough of him, you know? Yeah, I believe he, uh, he had a, his debut that playoff game. I think he scored top five, six. In a in a debut for a playoff game for a player, so he had a he had a very good performance. Anthony Edwards. Yeah, did. I mean it, his scoring, but it's also his presence. You know, yeah. you just see the presence he has. He knows he knows what to do, when to do it. Yeah, he took a few bad shots, uh, but for the most part, you know, just just a great game. Really enjoyed watching him. You know, he's the kind of guy that uh, if I had my Rucker team, he'd be the guy I'd be after. <laughs> <laughs> yes sir be going for number five then 
So listen, uh, I'm gonna have to go. I got I've got a, a dinner appointment. So we're good, right? Yes, sir, man. Once again, thanks for coming on. Uh, definitely enjoyed talking to you. Hopefully, we'll get a chance to talk basketball again in the future. And uh, this is good stuff, man. Appreciate you. Have a good day. Enjoy the rest of your Easter holiday. And great, Thanks great a lot. stuff. Thanks. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of the playoffs. Take yes, care. sir. You, you. you too. Okay.